Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live Saturday mornings from 9 till 10. Find us online at federalnewsradio.com or hear us on the radio in the Washington, D.C. area on the following frequencies, 1500 AM and 1039 FM HD 2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. As always, it was an exciting week in technology, and it's just fun to watch all of the events unfold. Uh, it's all about Russian hacking of the election. I don't know yeah. if you've noticed this. No, what? Russians here, the Russians, Russians there, something? Russians, Russians everywhere. I hadn't noticed <laughs> And they're. Uh, we'll talk about well, they're 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 uh, they're hacking attempts, but they've been doing this for years now. Uh, but now we are um, beginning to um, watch what's going on. And what's interesting, this whole Russian hacking thing—it's really information warfare. Mm-hmm. Our adver- adversaries are using our social media tools and engaging in information warfare. So the Russians are doing it now. The Iranians are doing it. North Koreans are doing it. And we don't really have tools set up to manage it. And so that's sort of the crux of the matter. I think they can handle hacking the websites, you know, getting hold of uh, Hillary's emails, uh, you know, all of that stuff. That's just child's play. They can fix that. But this information warfare is difficult to deal with in this age of social media. And voting machines are also under suspicion. They've, be, there's, they've been accusing some of the biggest voting machine companies that they really haven't handled security properly. So there's some movement in that area. And North Korea, oh, the Mac now is fully respected. You know, for years, we only had malware attacking Windows. Really? Because people said, you know, why bother with a Mac? There aren't enough Macs. Mm-hmm. Okay, finally, the North Koreans have given Macintosh respect. They've created malware for the Mac. <laughs> <laughs> now, this week, we're going to feature the man who is father of the European Internet. It's, it's fun to go back to look at this history. It is, yes. Thomas Kirsten, he's the father of the European in- Internet, and... Uh, it's, it's sort of interesting to see his story and how he became part of the whole Internet story. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbox. There's a letter in your mailbox. Oh, He's oh, there for a he change. is right on the money. Mm-hmm. We got an email from Janet in Arlington. Dear Doc and Jim, I've enjoyed Tech Talk for many years, and you've always recommended using a VPN when connecting to a public Wi-Fi. Well, you are right, Janet. I am, I am a believer in that because people can just sniff all your passwords if you're not careful at a public Wi-Fi. But I've heard some disturbing news about a free VPN service offered by Facebook. What are your comments about this service, and what do you recommend? Love the show, Janet in Arlington. Well, Janet, you are right. Facebook did release a free VPN called Onavo. Onavo. O-N-A-V-O. It's a free VPN. It was available both on the iPhone as well as on Android phones. And here's the thing. This VPN was used by Facebook to spy on you and to spy on what their competitors were doing. So they were using this 
free VPN service as a way to gather data, and Apple caught them. Apple called them out on it. And so Facebook voluntarily removed their free VPN, Onico, from, um, from, the, from, the, uh, from the iPhone store, from the Apple store. And um, what Onovo promised, they say, we, help, we promise to help you secure your personal details uh, on a product's website. But what they didn't tell you is that they were keeping all your personal details. Uh, Onovo has been installed around in, a, in around 33 million devices. It's no longer available on the App Store. If you've got an iPhone, I'd recommend you just uninstall it now. It still remains available on the Android uh, platform, Google Play, the Google Play Store. I'd suggest you uninstall that, too. It's just not a good thing. Now, AV Test ran an independent uh, study of 12 VPNs. Okay, here's the thing. A free VPN is really never free. The only thing that a free VPN, uh, that it's paid for with something, and if you're not paying them for a subscription, that means they're using your data, and you're paying with data. So if you want to be private, don't use a free VPN. Now, AV Test tested 12 different VPNs, and, um, and they actually, if you're interested in being totally anonymous, you want to surf the web and be totally anonymous, they recommend NordVPN, N-O-R-D VPN, because it, it, it supports multi-hop proxy service, so it's very hard to trace back to your original IP address. Or um, they, also, they also recommend private Internet access VPN, but it doesn't, it doesn't support multi-hop. So they, they evaluated 12 of them. Now, I love ExpressVPN. I've been using it for years. I mean, everybody, you know, I pay about $100 a year for ExpressVPN. I like it because it's low latency, and, um, and I can watch, uh, say, Netflix movies or Amazon Prime easily. If I'm not uh, in other countries when there are, when there are bands, uh, bands <laughs> but it's really my account. So even though I'm in a, in a banned country, since it's my account, I'm not actually breaking any of the terms of service. But, but it's, I can't find anybody to call them up and, and give me permission when I'm in India. So I, I can go into the, with the ExpressVPN and I can, I can look at Prime or, or Amazon. And they keep – it's kind of a cat and mouse game. They keep changing their servers and then it takes a while for Netflix or Prime to catch up with them. So I like them. Listen, there's a complete report from AV Test. I'll give a link to it. Or you could just do AV-Test VPN Comparative Report. And you can pull it up. I'll I'll put the full link in my um in the in the show outline going forward. But uh, Janet, that was an excellent email, and um, you do have to be careful when you select your VPN service. We got an email from Chris in Atlanta, dear Doc and Jim. I like to sign up for newsletters from many organizations, but now I'm getting lots of spam. Is there any way I can tell? Who's sharing my email account so that I can stop using them in the future? Enjoy the podcast, Chris in Atlanta. Well, you can easily set up a Gmail account to track different things. The, the nice thing about a Gmail account, it ignores the plus sign in the address field. So you, you might have first name, last name, at gmail.com. So after your first name, last name, and before the at Gmail, you put a plus, And then anything after the plus and before the ampersand is just ignored by Gmail. So you could put... You could put like so. You could put say Rick Shirts plus newsletter ABC newsletter at gmail.com. And so, if ABC newsletter shares your email address, it will actually show up because it will come to you with Rick Shirts plus ABC newsletter at gmail.com. And you can set up a um, a folder 
and a label, and all of the spam from each of those different sources can go into its own separate folder. That way you can identify who are the nasty people. You can all, it's also easy <laughs> then to put all of that unwanted spam into a folder so you don't, you don't have to look at it. You could also set up a rule where any, any email that comes from that particular email address you just immediately delete. So Gmail's got that set up very nicely. Just remember the, anything after the plus sign and before the ampersand is just ignored by Gmail, but you can use it for tracking your email. That was a very good question. By the way, Gmail also doesn't care about the period. They ignore the period before the ampersand. So I could have richardshirts at gmail.com or I could have richard.shirts at gmail.com and it would be the same. Uh-huh. We got an email from John in the Eastern Shore. Dear Tech Talk, I have a home network with three computers, two desktops connected to Ethernet cables. Uh, the wireless router, wireless is encrypted because uh, I've got a password. I'm using WPA2. Now, I gave my, net, my next-door neighbor my network key so they can log on and use my Internet to, you know, to check for email and do their banking. They're not on my home network, but can they still see what I'm doing or where I'm surfing? I'm this a little bit worried about them. Sounds dangerous. Yeah, John at Easter, sure. Well, John? His neighbor's names are Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, it's, well, it's good that, you, that your wireless access point is encrypted. That's always nice. You're, you know, you're encrypting it so people who don't have the password key cannot see what's going on in your network. But, of course, you gave your neighbors the network key. So for them, none of your network traffic is encrypted because they can see it all if they want to. They can, just, they, can just have a, they can just put a network sniffer up there, and they can just sniff all those packets and see what's going on, and there's nothing you can do about it. Now, there's another problem, too. If your neighbors go to some site that is really illegal, say a kitty, say a kitty porn site, for yeah. instance— that's going to be traced back to your IP address, and the police are going to show up at your door. So you, you really want to only share your Internet connection with people who you trust. Now, what I would recommend – now, uh, a lot of people are doing this because they're trying to beat the cable company, and they figure, okay, they're charging so much for Internet. I've got all this bandwidth. Let's have a few neighbors you know, join together. What you could do – you could, you could set up a second router. You could plug in a second router into the Ethernet port of your router, and then you could share the Wi-Fi connection to that second router with your neighbor. And then that way you are behind the firewall of your second router so your neighbor can't see anything, and so that protects you. Well, there's one third thing that I forgot to mention that is a problem if they're actually on your network. If they go out and get infected by some sort of malware on their computer, the first thing that computers do, they look at the local area network and they spread their mischievous software to all the computers in the local area network. So you are vulnerable to them if they're on your same segment, and they would be if you just share your, uh, share your password. So if you don't set up a second router so you're behind a, a firewall with them, then I would suggest you definitely in, make certain that the firewalls on each of your computers are turned on. So you've got a, it, the firewall in the router, which is to the outside world, and then you've got the firewall on each of your computers that protects you from your neighbor. Now, some routers, uh, the more recent routers, have actually two, two systems. and They set up a guest account, and the guest account is actually behind a firewall so that you are so that the home account is protected from the guest account. So it could be that your your router if it's more than one of the more recent routers has that. So anyway, just be careful and be mindful. Oh, one final thing I need to tell you. Uh-oh. 
you could be violating the terms of service of your ISP. Now, it's unlikely that they're going to detect it, but if they did, they could penalize you. So I went just to, you know, because I'm trying to be give proper legal advice here, I went and looked up the terms of service on my Verizon Fios just to see what it said. And this is, I, I just it took out a couple of sentences. Except as otherwise set forth in this agreement, you may not resell, reprovision, or rent the service either for a fee or without charge, or allow third parties to use the service via wired, wireless, or other means. Violation of this section may result in bandwidth restrictions of your service or suspension or termination of your service. That sounds harsh. That sounds harsh. Uh, Now, they probably are not going to discover it uh, unless all of a sudden you have shared it with 25 neighbors. You've got 100 devices running on on the system, and then they say, you know, something is fishy going on here. We got an email from Dave in Illinois. Dear Tech Talk, I'd like to become a programmer or a developer. What language do you think I should learn first? Dave in Illinois. Well, uh, Dave, it really depends on your objective. There are a few really good options out there. Python is really a nice first language. A lot of the of the universities now, computer science universities, are now teaching Python as the first language. They used to teach C, then C++. These are actually um, uh, more difficult languages. They're, the, the syntax is much more uh, much more unforgiving. They're not a, they're what they call a variable language. They're, 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 um, and so Python, though, is actually easy and fun to learn. Uh, rather than jumping straight into a straight syntax rules, Python reads a little bit like English. So it's easy to understand somebody who's new to program because, you see, when you start learning program, programming you there are two things you've got the, the syntax part and then you've got the program flow and the structure and programming principles like loops and and all of that sort of thing and so with python you can focus on the programming architecture and the structure and, and don't get so hung up on the um on the syntax so uh, which that's why they start teaching with that well for and it's used python is used by a lot it's 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 ideal for web development it's ideal for development of graphical user interfaces, and it's good for software development. In fact, websites that have been built entirely on Python include Instagram, YouTube, and Spotify. And so there is the demand among employers. Now, if you want to go to uh, more of a structured language, C Sharp is a pretty good one. It's built on the, the foundation of C. And we, we've talked about the C programming language. C is actually machine-level language, so... If you know C, it, it really gives you a sense of how computers work. So if you want to become a hardcore developer and you really want to become a master coder and you want to be able to handle any challenge, no matter where it is, you really need to know C. And C Sharp is used a lot for many of the many of the applications. So C Sharp is not a bad choice. Java, now C Sharp is, uh, Java is an object-oriented programming. It's a heavy-duty programming language. It's uh, It was be- built under the premise that you write it once, run it anywhere. So you can it runs on multiple operating systems, multiple CPUs, and so it's uh, it's a very desired language. And there are, there are billions of things operating in um, in Java. It turns out that all of the Java is often used for Android and iPhone app development. It's also the basis of the Android operating system. So it's a better choice. But Java is just a little bit harder to learn. I, I still think Python is going to be your best one. JavaScript is always a go-to. I learned that many, many, many years ago. It was one of my first programming languages. Actually, I learned it so long ago, my first one, I really hate to say, was Fortran. <laughs> that was... Uh, You're dating yourself. I know, I'm dating myself. 
That doesn't sound right, Jim. <laughs> well, you're in a mood today. That's right. <laughs> and Usually, I'm the one with the snarky that's comments. That's right. And so, uh, and so, uh, JavaScript is nice because um, uh, JavaScript is. Um, many websites rely on JavaScript. It's actually the JavaScript engine is actually built into your browser, and so it's a way to make web pages interactive and, and active. And you, you have JavaScript, which is which is uh, you know which is executed. In the client, as they say, which would be your computer as the client, and then you're getting web pages from the the web server. And so you're on, this is client side uh, programming. There's nothing to install with JavaScript because it's built into the browser. So JavaScript is is a nice nice language to learn. And then of course Ruby is very good. That was the last one I'm talking about. It's very similar to Python. It's one of the easiest languages for people to learn with no prior programming experience. Now, the reason people like Ruby is that they have what, what they call a full-stack framework. You can actually program the front end, which would be what the user sees, as well as the back end that manages the databases and everything in between. So it's a full, it has a full-stack framework, and the full-stack framework is called Ruby on Rails. And it's very convenient. It's very popular for many startups and enterprise solutions. For instance, Airbnb, Groupon, Hulu, and SoundCloud all are written on Ruby on Rails. So... Those are a few ideas for you as to which, which programming language um, would be the best for you. And, and really, just pick one and learn, and learn it. Uh, my, my, my recommendation is that you, should, uh, that you should actually learn one programming language extremely well. Don't, don't run around and try to run a whole bunch of them superficially actually do a real application. So when I think back how I learned to, say, when I wanted to learn databases, I wrote the first database system that we had at Stratford University. It ended up being, you know, almost 100,000 lines of code. But wow. I taught myself database programming in, 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 in writing that particular application. And I just, I, just had the, I just had a reference book there, and I just started writing it and working in it. And then what happens is that there, there are a lot of code repositories. Okay, this is a little secret. Coders actually don't write everything originally. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. So there are a lot of code repositories. You can go out and you can find a block of code that somebody's written, and they, they share it. You cut and paste. It's, and, and you cut and paste it, and you, you just have to know how to read it and make certain there's nothing malicious going on there. So, so, my, so when I wrote my first application, it was a combination of original stuff as well as cut and paste then when I wanted to learn um, Warren Web, I, I wrote our first web page in PHP, which is uh, which is an open source uh, programming language, it, and it basically it basically handles all the back end there of a way, so I had a database driven website, and so that's really how I learned it. So pick an application and do something with it, and so pick one programming language and do a serious application. Then you can learn the other programming languages by sort of analogy once you learn one really well. And I wish you the best of luck there. And um, programming is a lot of fun if you approach it the right way. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. And we'll get back to you immediately. Or we'll get back to you at the very next show. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2. You can follow us on Periscope to watch us do the show. Download the Periscope app to your device. Follow us at WFED Tech Talk. 
If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has experienced IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with a Accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Learn more about Stratford's up to $15,000 IT scholarship competition. Application deadline is September 30th for those who qualify. Register today at stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Pro-Ops in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Peter Thomas Kirsten. Peter Thomas Kirsten is a British computer scientist who played a key role in the creation of the Internet. He is best known as father of the European Internet. Peter Kirsten was born in Berlin, Germany in 1933, but he moved to the U.K. in 1937, and he attended Highgate School in North London. After he graduated from high school, he went to Gonville and Chaos College at Cambridge University. There he received a Bachelor of Arts at Cambridge, in mathematics and electrical engineering in 1954. Then he moved to the U.S. In, uh, after he got his bachelor's degree, and he, and he attended Stanford University. He received a Master of Science in 1955 and a Ph.D. in 1957, both in electrical engineering. Then after he completed his, uh, you know, his degrees in the U.S. and worked in the U.S. for a while, he moved back to London. And in 1970, he got a Doctor of Science in Engineering from the University of London. And his Ph.D. thesis in London was a solution to the equations of space charge flow by a method of separation of variables. That's right up your alley. It is. I did a little bit of that, actually, because my Ph.D. was on semiconductor lasers, and I was actually calculating the flow of electrons and holes through the PN junction. So, actually, this is not <laughs> not so difficult. And then I coupled that to light, and so then I coupled the electrons to the light and made the whole model for the semiconductor laser. Bring you back memories, Jim. And that was in... Uh, <laughs> and you're in, scrambling in, my brain. That was in engineering. Early. Okay, in 1958, he became a lecturer at Stanford University in microwave engineering. Then in 59, he joined the Center of Nuclear Research in Geneva as an accelerator physicist. This was at, uh, at CERN, where they have an accelerator. During this time, he spent six months at the Joint Center for Nuclear Research in Dubna, Russia. Wow. I guess that's when we were working closely with the, the Russians. Mm-hmm. Joint Center for Nuclear Research in Dubna, Russia. 
That was in 59. That's during the Cold War, though, that isn't it? That was during it? the Cold War. I'm figuring how, how that is really quite amazing that he was there. In 63, he joined the European Office of the U.S. General Electric Corporation Research Center, and they were responsible for evaluating all of European scientific research. Then in 1967, he joined the University of London Institute of Computer Science, first as a reader and then as a professor of computer communication systems. He transferred to the new University of London um, Department of Statistics and Computer Science in 1973, and he became the head of computer science department in 1980. Now, his group there at uh, the group that he created there at um, in the Department of Statistics and Computer Science, they started the first European ARPANET node, and they had transatlantic IP connectivity. If you remember, back in the beginning, DARPA it was actually called ARPA, Advanced right. Research Project Agency, and so ARPA and it was their networks. They called it ARPANET, and they basically connected research labs in the U.S. So the original ARPANET was, you know, running only probably a few nodes in the U.S., maybe like ten nodes, at the, at the research university. So they created a node at the University College in London. And they ran basically a, uh, you know, they, they basically, through an undersea cable, they connected that node in, uh, in London to the U.S. node, node to, to the U.S. network, and that became the first European ARPANET. It, it was probably quite a, a slow connection to the U.S. because we didn't have fiber optics back then. It was probably cable, but, but, they, but that how long was— of, How long do you think that would take? No, it's you know it still passes at the it's it travels at the speed of nearly the speed of light. But the mm-hmm. problem is you've got you've got a it's, bandwidth issue. Right. It's not speed. It's band. It's it's, you it's, lose. it's the amount of information that you can mm-hmm. put, punch through the pipe at the same time. He co- now he co-authored in 1978 a paper with Vince Cerf, which was one of the most Vince was one one of the fathers of the internet. He was once on Tech Talk a few you know about ten or fifteen years ago. Mm-hmm. He was. Uh, he was one of the most and he 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 authored with Vince Cerf one of the most significant early technical papers on internetworking, and it was titled "Issues in Packet Network Interconnection." His research group at at, at University College in London. Adopted TCP/IP in 1982. This was the this is the protocol of the internet. See, the internet originally had a lot of there 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 were a lot of different networks around the country that had that, that had different physical layers, what they call different data link layers. You had you had one in Hawaii that was actually run by radio connection between the different islands. You had you had some that were running on dial-up lines. So you had all of these different islands of networks that that have been run by uh, DARPA. And, they, and it was very hard for them to talk to each other. So they built a software layer on top of it, and they connected all the networks together. So they created an inter-network, and that's where the name Internet came from. And so TCPIP is a protocol that sits on top of the data link layer, which, which all these other ones, and it, and it actually allows you to, to, you know, to route packets between these networks. And so it was the first inter-network protocol, and that was... Actually, and Vint Cerf and Bob Kahn invented TCP/IP around in the time of about 1973 was when it was first invented. It finally had gone through engineering, and it was released for the ARPANET in 1982. And UCL adopted TCP/IP in 1982, 
and they played, and they they were a year, actually that was a year before the ARPANET officially became TCPIP, and they played a, a big role. In fact, Peter Kirsten played a big role in sort of the initial formulation of the ARP, on the uh, of the ARPANET. He collaborated with many industrial and academic partners in in multimedia networking, network management, directory and security applications. So he was right in the beginning working with Vint Cerf and the guys that were trying to trying to create this idea of an internet. And it was it, what was impressive really about that time is that this whole internet came out of research from the Advanced Research Project Agency, and they could easily have said this is going to be a classified network. And Vince Cerf and Bob Kant convinced the government to make it open source and release it to the world. They said the world needs a, a broadly available communication system, and that will do more for world peace than, say, keeping this great technology hidden. And I'm telling you, Bob Kahn and Vince Cerf convinced the government to do that, which was an extraordinary feat, and I think the world is better off for it. And so, and then they were working with Peter Kirsten and uh, to, to get it into Europe, and as well as pe other people to get it around the world. Now, Peter Kirsten, is, in 1994, he assumed the role of director of research at UCL, and he continued teaching. Now, Peter Kirsten was really highly regarded in Britain. He was awarded the CBE by the Queen. Now, the CBE is Commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire. I want one of those. Yeah, that's a very big Commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire for his work on the Internet. He's a fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering. He's a fellow of the Institute of Electrical Engineers and a distinguished fellow of the British Computer Society. He received the SIGCOM Award in 1999, and as well as the Postel Award in, in 2003. The Postel Award, that is a, a, awarded by the Internet Society, and that's, that's a very, very great honor. He was inducted into the Internet Hall of Fame by the Internet Society in 2012, and he was awarded the Marconi Prize, which is really a prestigious yeah. one in, in 2015. So Peter Kirsten was one of the original individuals who was putting together and basically creating a, a global Internet for communication. There you go. Peter Kirsten, best known as father of the European Internet. So there you go. You forgot to tell folks oh, yeah. stuff about, you know. There you go. There so, you go. So that's that's. listen, we love all your emails. Yeah, well, okay, I'm the one that's lost, not okay, you. Okay, okay. My turn to tell you that okay. I hope you're paying attention because your chance to turn <laughs> knowledge into free food when we play the pop quiz coming up here in just a minute on Tech Talk Radio. Heard every Saturday on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, and 1039 FM HD2. Stand by. Be right back. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has experienced IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with acceptance 
accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Learn more about Stratford's up to $15,000 IT scholarship competition. Application deadline is September 30th for those who qualify. Register today at stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. <sighs> yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Please sit down, sit down. I, I know they're really wound I know up they're excited. They're really excited. Saturday morning in the August they're, time. You know, they're, you know, they're, they're holding up PC, TCPIP flashcards, you know, here, <laughs> because they just, they're just really into protocols. Yes. Now, no. this is not simply a radio show. This is a classroom of the airwaves. I thought it wasn't a radio show at all. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, it is, and we've, we've given up on that years yeah, ago. Yeah, we have. Mm-hmm. So, if, since it's a classroom, we are going to do an assessment to see whether you've been listening to the show. And if you get the correct answer to a pop quiz, you'll receive tickets to fine dining at Stratford University, one of their dining rooms. You'll also get an A-plus for today's show. Now, early in the show, we were talking about Peter Kirsten, father of the European Internet. So now you've got two choices here. He set up the first node in a network that had a particular name. What was the name of that network? And when he oops, hang on. Great. What do you want? A medal? Pick up the phone and give us a call. If you're calling from west of the Rockies, I can't stop it's eight seven seven nine three six nine three three. Should I pinch him? No. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia. It's 877-936-9333. If uh, you're waiting for the summer <laughs> snow in Canada, call us on the wild card He's line, 877-936-9333. And of course, as always, the international line is 877-936-39333. And now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Jones. See, he's yes. polite. He'll tell you when it's time to talk. So let me just finish the question. Oh, yeah. Which, a, which, I, which I, he thought you were finished. So he, was, he, he wanted to finish his cigarette. So, so. This, this is the thing. Uh, when he set up the first European node, um, he was working with uh, that, at that you know, with, a, with an agency in the U.S. What was the name of the network that he was connecting to? The name of the network is the first question. And the second question, oh. if you so choose, would be where was that node located? You can pick one or the other. So you get a choice there. Yes. Andrew Mitchell, our adjunct professor for prize distribution and crowd control, is standing by to take your call, so dial now. Oh, there you go. There we you got, go. We got our money's worth out of him this we week. We certainly did. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Microsoft has been, you know, getting into this whole Russiagate thing, and they, they've been looking at what Russia's been doing. And so, for instance, a group affiliated with the Russian government created a phony version of six websites, some related to public policy, some to the U.S. Senate, with the apparent goal of hacking the computers of people who were tricked into visiting the site. So they created six sites that looked like official sites, 
And then the idea is you send emails to people to say, hey, you've got to check out your credentials. And then they click on a link and it goes to this fake site. And then when people put in their password and their username, they, they have access to their account. So that, that's a typical way of phishing technique, as they call it. So this effort was, was performed by the notorious hacking group APT28. And they've been, Sounds like a gang. APT twenty, and they've been publicly linked to the Russian intelligence agency, and they've been, and they actively interfered with the twenty sixteen presidential election. I thought they were part of the Crips of the Bloods. No, no, no not not really. And so this shows that the Russians are still ag- aggressively trying to engage in hacking in the U.S. Now, the U.S. official repeated, repeatedly warned uh, the Russia about this since the um, since the last since the twenty sixteen election. Microsoft said the sites were created over the past several months and that the company was able to catch them early as they were being set up. So Microsoft's Digital Crime Unit, which is responsible for the company's response to email phishing schemes, took a lead role in finding and disabling the sites. Among those targeted were the Hudson Institute, a conservative Washington think tank, with investigations on corruption in Russia, the International Republican Institute, uh, a nonprofit group that promotes democracy worldwide. Three other fake sites were crafted to appear as though they were affiliated with the Senate, as well as a non-political site that spoofed Microsoft's own own online product group. So it's nice to see that Microsoft is on this. Mm-hmm. You know, that, notice this was not picked up by U.S. intelligence, picked up by Microsoft. Now, what can we learn from the not Petya attack? Now, see, there there was a malware out that was called Petya, P-E-T-Y-A. Mm-hmm. was released by the Russians to sort of... Uh, to go after the Ukraine. And then shortly after that, they created another one, which was not Petya. <laughs> so, so the one that followed was called not Petya attack. So there, the cyber weapon not Petra was started in the Ukraine in June of 2017. It quickly spread and paralyzed country, companies worldwide, including FedEx, Merck, uh, as, as well as Marsk, the uh, world's shipper, the largest shipping mm-hmm. company. Ultimately, it caused more than $10 billion in damage. Now, this was a Russian military intelligence hacker that released the malware, and it was based on zero-day vulnerabilities that they had access to. And that means if it's zero-day vulnerability, it means there are vulnerabilities that are not known by the software vendor, and no patches have been released. And so it was really meant just to... To conduct cyber warfare on their enemies in the Ukraine, they, you know, they, Ukraine was sort of their test lab for how can we bring down an infrastructure. But what happened was because it attacked the zero-day exploits, which were, you know, global vulnerabilities, it actually spread outside of Ukraine and just went worldwide, like gangbusters. Now, Maersk, which was a worldwide shipping company, just brought down all of their servers, mm. but it turned out. There was one remote office in Ghana that had had a powder already, power outage when not Petra stuck, struck. So their networks, all of their network files were intact. So they used the that network files from Ghana that had the that had the power outage to restore their entire network. They were, they were really kind of lucky with that. So what did we learn from that? You really got to back up your system. You've got to make offline copies of all your data. And if you get hit with ransomware attack that encrypts your data, that may be the only way to recover. You can't necessarily prevent this because you can't predict every every day zero exploit, but you need to have resilience, assume it's going to happen, and go for it. This is, this is what we learned from it. 
What do we do now that uh, how can now the the question is how can we send a message to Russia that this is really unacceptable behavior because they unleashed malware on the world that was quite devastating mm-hmm. and uh, you know and it was reckless what they did. Now Facebook is also trying to respond to the Russian threat. They removed more pages, accounts, and groups linked to influence campaigns originating from Iran as well as Russia. At least this is a start. This is an asymmetric battle because what it is is that it doesn't cost them much to deliver the malware, yet the yet the the cost to the West is quite significant because of the damage is there. So their cost is is low and our cost is very high. So the only way to stop it is we've got to respond in a way to make their cost as high as ours. We've got to make this symmetric rather than purely asymmetric. There you go. Oops, wait a minute. That's really loud. Whoa. Sorry about that. That that magic music means we've got somebody who'd like to play our game. Let's okay. go to Thomas who's on the wild card line. Thomas, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Okay, Doc, if you would ask the question, please. Yes, earlier in the show, we talked about Peter Thomas Kirsten, a father of the European Internet. Of course, he connected to a network that had a particular name, and he also connected at a particular location. Can you give either of those? Arpanet. That is correct. We have a winner. Woo-hoo. Well, we were we were wondering who, you know, it's it's the middle of summer. Anyone paying attention? And you were. So, That's Thomas, it. thanks a lot for playing. Hang on just a second. We're going to <laughs> send you back to Andrew, and he will give you your prize, or at least send it out to you. It's Saturday morning, and you are listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, and 103.9 FM HD2. Stand by. We will be back with more of Tech Talk in just a minute. You can watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at Fed, uh, the WFED Tech Talk. You can learn more about Stratford University by following us on the web. Go to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has experienced IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with exceptional Accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Learn more about Stratford's up to $15,000 IT scholarship competition. Application deadline is September 30th for those who qualify. Register today at stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. The idea of the week, robots can help autistic children. Hmm. A new study published by by Science Robotics suggests that a month of robot-aided lessons might help autistic children communicate more effectively. 
Manifestations of autism vary from person to person, but often include trouble interacting and communicating with others. In particular, trouble figuring out whether the other person is mad at you or happy. They have trouble, you know, identifying moods. For this experiment, uh, they recruited 12 families of children who had communication difficulties due to autism. The children were between 6 and 12. They were given a special computer setup that included an early prototype of Jibo, a 12-inch robot developed by MIT. And Jibo has a, um, it, it can actually, it, it, it responds to voice commands. It can rotate its body and it's at 360 degrees. And it has a blank screen for a face. Hmm. And the face can have eyes and they can have a, a mouth. And you can create emotion or you can create different expressions with the eyes and the and the and the mouth, and you know, and you can you can communicate, uh, uh, you know, how you're feeling. The um, the the Jibo can the eyes can blink and they can indicate emotions. Now, children with their caretaker interact with Jibo every day for 30 minutes. They had games that reinforced aspects of communication, such as reading the other's emotions or understanding their perspective. The children got better as time went on, with most being able to complete the highest level of activity by the end of a month-long study. Now, the interesting thing is outside of the robot sessions, the children also showed improvement in their ability to pay attention to the same thing as the adults they were with. So it, it actually improved their ability to communicate with others in the family, others adults or other children in the family. The children became more socially adept and willing to make more eye contact and communicate with others. So there was a remarkable improvement in only 30 days. Now, the problem is once they stopped interacting with Jibo, their skills waned after 30 days. But this is a research area that's definitely worth that's interesting. additional work. You know, that's actually – I think this, this, is, this, this would be a low-cost way to give counseling for kids with autism. You know, you don't, you don't have to have these highly paid specialists to come in and, and do it. Let's talk about digital Let's detox. Let's do that. Digital detox. We've got a problem here in America. Everybody is on their cell phone. You go to a restaurant, people are looking at their cell phone. You, people walk down the sidewalk. They have just become inundated, buried in digital communication. Now, digital detox rever- re- refers to a period of time during which a person refrains from using all electronic devices such as smartphones and computers. Do you get the shakes? It's, it happens to some people. You know, <laughs> it gives you a chance to reduce stress, focus more on social interactions, connect with nature. Connect with nature? What's yeah. that? In the physical world. In the physical world. <laughs> There's stuff outside? Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, there are things outside. The claimed benefits include increased mindfulness, lower anxiety, and overall better appreciation of one's environment. In one study in mind, 93, 95% of those interviewed said their mood improved after putting down their phones to spend time outside. And they changed from dis- depressed, stressed, and anxious <laughs> to calm and balanced. Now, that's a, that's, that's, a, that's a definite plus. And, you know, there is a lot to be said because if you look at the, the uh, happiness rate of children growing up, they're, they're a lot less happy. And we've got all this trouble with Facebook where, like, fear of missing out, Facebook mm-hmm. envy because everybody else looks better than you. So over time, people begin to – it begins to affect like, their, their self-image. What's wrong with me? Yeah, Why is my right. life not as good as these people? 
That's right. right. Now, cost and engagement with digital devices in the workplace claims, you know, they, they show that it leads to increased stress levels and reduced productivity because you are con- you can never really concentrate on a task because you're always going back to check your email. Right. So, And when you multitask, you can't do a single task as well. Multitasking is not really as effective as deep focus on one task. Certain characteristics of the technology make it difficult also to distinguish work from pleasure. So, so now... It's not like people can leave work. They leave work and they still get emails. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're, they're at work 24-7. And in addition, all this conductivity, while you're at work, you're, you're interrupted. So you, you don't have intense concentration at work, and then you can't enjoy yourself at home. And so they found that allowing employees to disconnect for part of the day in order to truly focus on their work is very beneficial to the productivity and work environment. So now companies are saying, look, maybe just... Put away your phone, turn it off for a couple of hours, and work at work, and, and you go ho- go home. Turn off your uh, turn off your, um, your 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 digital device. So this digital detox, I think, is going to become more and more important go- going forward, just for our own mental health. Mm-hmm. Voting systems boost security after criticism. The electronic systems and software company, which is the third largest election system vendor in the U.S., announced finally that it will work with the Department of Homeland Security and the Information Sharing and Analyst Centers in an effort to increase security of its systems ahead of the 2018 midterm elections. The federal partnerships will help conduct cyber hygiene scans of the ES&S public-facing Internet presence. They'll monitor and share cyber threats, detect and report indicators of compromise, and develop a distributed electronic election security best practices system. This is actually a pretty good thing. It used to be these guys had proprietary software. They wouldn't share it. They wouldn't interact, and nobody knew what was going on. And now I think the threat is sufficiently high that they're responding to, you know, public outcry. ES&S also said they'll install advanced threat monitoring sensors known as the Albert Network Security Sensors, in its <laughs> voting registration environment in an effort to further secure the voting system. That was the other problem. They, they, we, they didn't have a way to detect whether an intrusion had taken place. So they said, well, you know, we secured it, but then this, can you prove it? They, they, they didn't have So now they're, they're, they're basically putting in a monitoring system to detect in case there is, a, is an intrusion. The press release that came just after this group was formed was done in response to criticism from the day after there was criticism from the Senate. The senators criticized ESNS for refusing to allow independent testing of its systems at the at the popular DEFCON convention, which was held just last month. They said, if you guys are so good, let, the, let DEFCON try to hack it, and they wouldn't let them do it. <laughs> this is where hackers attempt to find ways to exploit voting technology. So these guys were hoping that, they, that their proprietary systems were unknown to people, could be secure, and that's no longer acceptable in this heightened heightened world of election hacking. Now let's start. You know, I got a kind of a Russia theme here today. You do. Have they have they taken over your brain? No, they haven't taken over my brain. They have no, not. Not not at all. But uh, there's no Russian collusion with no I, with I, tech actually, talk. No, not at all. But you, you know, the thing is, I you know, actually, see, Russia is no longer the power of its former self. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, China's the real threat. So it's, it's almost like Putin has like a Napoleon complex. He's, he's small and less significant. Therefore, he has to have a bigger th- 
threat presence. You might want to have somebody start your car for you when you leave. <laughs> oh, maybe that that would be that would be a good. Well, maybe I should just maybe you, I should you're not just talking walk, nice, comrade. Maybe I should just talk. Maybe I you should walk just home. walk home. Yeah, <laughs> get now, a bird scooter. Now, here's an, here's another problem that Russia has. They have very little innovation in the country. They they have a great, they have tremendous scientific um, uh, tremendous scientific output, but they have trouble actually getting that over to the finish line and creating innovative products. Russia has become almost a petro state, you know, where they sell oil. Mm-hmm. It, the nation of uh, roughly 140 million people, many of them highly educated, but their wealth comes mostly from resource extraction. And their economy rises and falls based on the price of oil and gas. When gas prices slide, the ruble is vulnerable. Now you look at other nations like China, like India, like Brazil. They have diversified wealth-building economies that are based on technology and manufacturing. I mean, you can see this. You walk down the aisles of Best Buy, you'll see them stocked with computers made in Chengdu, China, hard drives made in Thailand. And when you, you know, when you walk down the, when you drive down the street, you'll see cars made in Germany or Korea. Russia has not created any great global no, technology. No, you don't products. see that. No, have you ever seen a Russian laptop? <laughs> I mean, I mean, come on. Who's who's going to buy a Russian Weren't there laptop? There's always jokes about stuff made in Russia. They're yeah. big and clunky, and the cars were junk. I mean, and... can you imagine a Russian smartphone? Have you seen a Russian smartphone out there? No. no. Have you seen a Russian flat screen TV? <laughs> it weighs 400 pounds. No. The thing is, they have never taken. T- yet, Russian scientists are responsible for some of the most important scientific advances in the 20th century. They invented lasers. They did pioneering work on computers. They came up with the idea of fracking. But fracking was was later developed and commercialized in other nations. They've been unable at every step of the way to take great scientific discovery and convert it to innovation and create new products. Why has this happened? Probably too much central control. The government got involved. Too much central control. Yeah. Really? That's it. Yeah. The government tries to, tries to orchestrate an entire economy centrally. You just destroy innovation. See, like what China did back in the uh, – Back about 20, 25 years, 20 years ago, they, they, they created this hybrid system where they had sort of a capitalist economy, and then they had the sort of the, um, the communist uh, control, and they allowed capitalism to thrive within China. And that capitalism in China is what has been instrumental in so many of the startups. And so they created an environment that allowed capitalism to occur within China, and that was instrumental for the, you know, for the Chinese in, in innovation. And so... It's interesting to watch this. This this does not bode well for Russia long term, mm-hmm. and uh, so I just thought it was interesting to that is interesting. To, to sort of say that. And this all goes back to the whole Napoleon complex. See, Russia is not as powerful as you might think. China is the real economic real economic competitor that we have. Finally, Macintosh is getting some respect. North Korea has created Mac based malware. <laughs> So Mac users, beware. You are now fully respected. <laughs> North Korea appears to be developing malware that can affect your computer. So the, the, the security firm Kaspersky Labs uncovered the Mac operating system-based malware while investigating a hack of an unnamed cryptocurrency exchange in Asia. The breach was sourced back to an email that convinced a company employee to download a third-party app for trading virtual currencies. See, this is the case. 
you you get an email, he gives you a link, and you just don't want to follow it. Mm-hmm. It's always, you know, sort of like human error is always the source of all these penetrations. The app was a Trojan in disguise. It contained malware known as Fall Chill. <laughs> Fall Chill, which is linked to the notorious North Korean hacking group Lazarus. Once infected, Fall Chill can secretly take over the computer and steal data or install other malicious code. The app came from a U.S.-based company called CLOS, which specializes in secure blockchain solutions for the enterprise market. So you see, they North Koreans got this infected app in the application database of a U.S. company, and they downloaded this app from the U.S. company, and they were, they were infected by the North Korean app. So you see, you've got to be very careful. When you install it, the program doesn't do anything harmful. However... Kalpersky Lab noted that it can update itself. And so what Fallchill does, it takes a look at the basic information of your computer. It decides whether your computer is worth taking over. And if your computer is worth taking over, congratulations, <laughs> Fallchill downloads an update and installs the malicious code. So be mindful, Mac users. Don't install data from links that may be suspect. Yes. There's an emergency SOS feature on your iPhone. I, I didn't know this. I sort of got this thing. This, And I sort of got, was wondering about that. You remember Molly Tidbits? She was killed by that yeah. one guy. Mm-hmm. And it said she said, I'm going to call 911 if you don't bother me. Well, the thing is, if you have to call 911, it takes a while to do that. It turns out the iPhone has a feature in it where you can just press the... Press the um, the the power on button five times. It'll automatically dial nine one one. Really, and it will send to the nine one one call your 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 GPS location. It will also automatically call a backup phone number of somebody who you have designated and send them your GPS information. So this so this IP owned I, SOS feature I didn't know about it, and no. so. So I, I went back. I it, it I actually went back and in, and installed it. So it in the oh, case, you have to install it. No, you don't install. It, you have to turn it on. Oh, okay. So you so uh, in the if so what you do you just press the power button on your iPhone five times and then there will be an SOS slide bar that should just slide over the SOS bar and then you will have and it will make your nine one one call within about five seconds. Um, or you can you can hold the depending on the version of iOS you can hold the power button down and one of the volume keys continuously and it will dial nine one one. It depends on the version. Mm-hmm. It's supported in iPhone X eight eight eight. So if you want to set it up, simply go to settings slash emergency SOS and select auto call, and you'll and you'll it'll be set up for you automatically. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you immediately or maybe at the next show. And we want you to go to the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu. Check out the programs and tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.